In the mid-1950s, Murray Bowen asked a question that really seemed strange amongst his peers and certainly within the culture of his time. Murray, some of you don't know the name, was a young psychiatrist. He's working at the Menninger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, and in particular was serving men in the military. In, in so doing, he became familiar with multiple cases of severe schizophrenia. Soldiers often return from the battlefield despondent, depressed, even, even suicidal. Many of them dealt with what they called voices in their head, voices which often coached them towards self-harm. Here's the question Bowen asked. Where do these voices come from? Are they the product of mental illness, a mental deficiency? Are they the product of something greater? Maybe something happening within the individual's holding environment or family system. So uh, up to this point in time, psychiatry as a discipline viewed schizophrenia, personality disorders, and other forms of harmful self-talk voices as the product of mental illness. Something they believed is malfunctioning within the cerebral cortex. Bowen was not so sure. So beginning in the 1960s, he began a longitudinal study of voices, working with Georgetown University. What resulted has gone on to redefine the way that psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors treat subjects dealing with voices to this day. Rather than simply ascribe the voices that suffers here to mental illness, what, what Bowen discovered is the complex relationship to a subject's holding environment or family system. In many respects, what Bowen discovered were these voices can be identified with a defense system, given a no-win or catch-22 situation. Dr. Bowen would say it this way, when an individual finds themselves in a situation where there simply is no solution that might satisfy those who hold power within their environment, Voices might be manufactured by the person toward the end of finding a solution or a way out of that catch-22, even if that way out includes self-harm or the harm of others, all of which leads to a question that I want to begin with today. Are you hearing voices? So, so don't get me wrong, chances are high that most of you listening today, I don't, I don't want to in any way belittle this, but chances are high most of you are not suffering from schizophrenia or any psychological disorder. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not asking about that sort of voice. Nonetheless, when I ask most people the question, are there voices that live in your head? It really doesn't take very long before the answer comes back in the affirmative. Sometimes the voices are our own. We all talk to ourselves. But is our self-talk always healthy? Sometimes the voices belong to family members who does not live with the voice of at least one parent or perhaps grandparent living inside of them. There are voices that belong to significant others that sometimes show up loud and clear within our inner self. Then I wonder, are there voices that do not belong to humans that interact within us. Certainly, we might argue on the basis of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is one such voice. He speaks to us, 
deep within at a level that while not recognized within the discipline of psychology is absolutely real. Not to mention the opposing voices that enter our inner being. Can angels, even fallen ones, speak to us? To answer no is to ignore scripture, as much as our own experience. Which brings me to the topic I want to set in front of you today. In this episode of God Size Living, I want to go to chapter 10 of Daniel. I want, I want to meet Daniel at a place where there are no doubt voices speaking within him. In particular, I want to pay attention to the contrast that Daniel sets before us, namely the contrast between the voice of God and that of our enemy. As I began to work on this podcast, I have to tell you there was an old book that kind of jumped into my mind. And when I, when I say old, it is. The book's titled Of Muppets and Men. It was written in 1981. It's old, but it's good. When I, when I meet young people today, one of the questions I like to ask them is, hey, how familiar are you with the Muppets these days? As you might guess, I get a lot of strange looks, stares. Muppets? I'm generally asked, of course, it doesn't take long. All I have to do is mention two words, Sesame Street, and the game is on. With 4,500 episodes under the belt and an audience comprised of over 70 countries, who doesn't know the Muppets? But the Muppet Show, that's been a while. Although Disney, it is rumored, is going to bring it back this March via its streaming service. However, if you're my age, the Muppets, they're part of your bloodstream. You grew up with them perhaps without fully appreciating the genius of their creator, Jim Henson. In the book of Muppets and Men, one gets to see the genius at work. Henson was not only a master of modern puppetry, but his ability to develop characters that people of diverse backgrounds all relate to is nothing short of amazing. A pair of my favorites became known as the Grumpy Old Men or the Men in the Balcony. Everyone who watched the show could relate to them. Do you know why? First, because the pair represents our own cynicism towards things of this world. But, and maybe this is more significant, I think we identify with the grumpy old man because we all understand what it means to have voices living in our own balconies. Think about this with me. If I asked you to take out a blank sheet of paper right now and make a list for me, of the most significant voices living in your balcony, it probably wouldn't take you all that long. You might list the voices of your most significant others, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, an uncle, a sister, a brother, who have played or are playing a significant role in raising you. Some of these you might describe as positive. They're good voices. They encourage you. They may be a voice that helps you prepare for a difficult challenge or gets you through a difficult time, but not all would be described positively. Many might find these voices to be difficult, even discouraging or worse. Either way, they live inside of us. They interact with us at a level that is difficult for the layman to comprehend. Then there are the voices of people who have impacted us, sometimes for the better. You might have living inside of you the voice of a coach, a teacher, someone who formed you. Maybe it's the voice of a friend that you grew up with or someone who came into your life at a significant time. Then again, there are the voices of other people who have not impacted us toward our good, oppositely. These are voices of people that have harmed us, judged us, wounded us, sometimes deeply. 
than despite the limitation of psychology. I, I believe that there are voices that belong to the supernatural. Clearly, there are times in the Bible where a character interacts with a being, God or an angel, who speaks with them without being visible. Even the process through which we receive the Bible itself could be described through the use of the term voices. Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 describes all scriptures being God-breathed. The Greek word used in this text, the apneustos, literally paints a word picture of God breathing the words that become scripture into the writers who place them on paper. The voice, if you will, belongs to God. Peter uses similar language. In his second letter to Christians living in Rome, chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says that the writers of Scripture wrote as they were, listen to these words, quote, carried along, end quote, by the Holy Spirit. Again, the word picture is one that ascribes the voice of Scripture not to men, but to God. Whether human or supernatural, belonging to God or angels, the voices in our balconies, I think all of us would agree, can be good or they can be damaging, which is where I believe chapter 10 of Daniel takes us today. Last week, if you're with us, we found Daniel experiencing what is referred to in theological terms as an ecstasy. We might call it today an out-of-body experience. Daniel has been struggling with voices, voices that have begun to question whether Israel would ever truly be Israel Again, after 70 years in exile, it was time to go home. It was time to rebuild. God was on the move, using the Persian king Cyrus to pave the way home, but nothing was happening. Israel remained dormant, like an animal stuck in a stupor. <clears throat> Israel seemed to have lost its purpose along with its calling. Daniel was ready to give up when God showed up, when he lifted him up out of his body. And a divine man, think Jesus, appeared before him. <clears throat> when you go back and you read the description of this divine man, you'll find a direct correlation with the description given in Daniel chapter 10 to the description of Jesus in the Revelation chapter 1 verses 13 to 16. In the Revelation, John, like Daniel, experiences an ecstasy and not a body experience in which he finds himself face to face with Jesus. Daniel, we are told, is looking into the face of one who appears like lightning. His eyes are as burning torches, cutting through to the soul. His feet are like burning bronze. There's nothing, no one who's capable of standing up to him. The description is glorious and terrifying at the same time. In fact, a question that I like to ask people as they read this section of Daniel is, see how you would answer this, how, how would you feel were you to stand in front of such a man? By the way, don't, don't answer too quickly. Given some thought, most will say to me, frankly, I'd be terrified. I think I, think I would, but, but why? Think about it, we're standing in front of Jesus the lover of our souls, the one into whose eyes we will look on that day we breathe our last, the one that we drew pictures of as Sunday school kids, the one we've sung love songs to, all right? We call them hymns almost every Sunday. The one whose table we approach with gratefulness and gladness and yet we're terrified? Why? Can I use a word here? 
voices. In fact, if I can be specific, there's one voice in particular, and it doesn't belong to God. It's the voice of our accuser. It is, isn't it? It's the voice that's telling us that, like Adam and Eve did so long ago in the garden, we need to cover ourselves up. After all, you know who you are. You know what you've done. It's the voice telling us that we've not done enough, that we've hurt way too many people, that while others may be forgiven, we're not. It's a voice that knows our dark places and calls every one of them out. It's the same voice that you wake up with in your balcony. Every morning you arise. It is a voice of our enemy. In his 2018 book, Overcoming Distressing Voices, psychologists and authors Mark Hayward and Clarice Dows discuss case histories of individuals who experience voices in their balcony that have left them absolutely debilitated. Drawing upon their experience, utilizing CBT, that's Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, they seek to teach patients how to draw the messages of voices forward to the surface. They provide clients with tools designed to analyze and dissect their voices. Their therapeutic approach, in fact, rests on their ability to help patients replace harmful and damaging voices with more healthy ones. At a more popular level, John Acuff does something similar in his best-selling book of 2021, Soundtracks, by the way, I believe that his daughter's book is titled Your New Playlist is even better. Without a doubt, psychologists and life coaches understand the power of voices well, and I found their tools helpful. They are. Still, there is something that neither psychology nor life coaching can touch. Why? Because it resides at a level that has power. These are voices that belong to our enemies. I've always found it significant that one of the key terms used as a name for our enemy is that of devil. In Greek, the term is diabolos. The word is compound. The first part of his name is dia. Literally, it means a cross. Add to that the suffix, in this case, of verb boleo, diaboleo, diabolos, the, the devil. Well, that verb means to throw or to cast, put it together, a word picture is formed. Our enemy is the one who is consistently throwing across time and space accusations, accusations grounded in the law. His accusations are powerful because they're true. We do have dark places. We are uncovered. We, we have hurt people, plenty of them. And so we stand in front of Jesus and we're terrified. Daniel was and we are too. Which is what makes the words of Jesus found in Daniel 10 so significant. Do you remember what Jesus says to Daniel in this moment of terror? This, this is important. And I'll tell you why. It's important because there really is only one word that's able to set you free from terror. There's only one word that's able to loose you from self-degradation, self-hate. It's only one word that's able to set you free from the binding power that our supernatural enemy has over us. And that word does not belong to psychology. No measure of seeking to reconstruct a new playlist will work. We need a word that has greater power than that of our enemy. And that word is called the gospel. 
It's the word of Jesus that announces that while every one of the accusers' accusations is true, the cross means forgiveness. Have I hurt people? Yeah, deeply. Have I sought out my own gain as did the prodigal son so many years ago? I have. Have I reason to cover myself knowing who I really am? Yes, I do. But the gospel says that while I cannot, I cannot cover myself. The cross has. I love the words of Jesus in verse 10 of chapter 10 of Daniel. Just listen to this word. I'm going to read and I pray, Lord, that you simply touch us through this word today. Verse 9 of chapter 10 reads as follows, quote, I was in a deep sleep, face down with my face to the ground. Daniel's face is turned away from Jesus, terrified as he lay like a dead man before Jesus' fiery feet. And then Jesus speaks. Listen to the words. Jesus says, Daniel, you are the one who brings me delight. The Aramaic word used here is hamadoth. Daniel, do you know who you are? You're the one I hamadoth delight in. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that of yourself? That you bring such great delight to God that the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 to 17 would tell you that when God hears your name each morning, he dances over you. Do you believe that? Do you feel that? If not, I can tell you why. Voices. The voices that live within us are so powerful. But I also believe this. His voice is more powerful. I want to leave you today with a couple of questions that I hope are helpful. Question one, which voices? Which ones are the loudest in your balcony today? Are they the ones that belong to the world? How about the enemy's voice? Or is it the voice of the one who loves your soul? Question two, do you struggle to believe it? I believe that there's a qualitative difference between acknowledging and truly believing the voice of a God who says to you, Hamadoth, I delight over you. Perhaps our struggle is based on the reality of this conditional world in which we live, a world in which I might be loved or cared for one moment only to be rejected the next. If you're struggling with the gospel, I want you to know you're not alone. But I'll tell you, that is the most important voice in your life today. Why? Because it is this voice alone that has the power to set you free. I want to encourage you to spend time this week meditating on just one thing. The love that Jesus has for you. In that love, it is my hope that his voice becomes the loudest voice in your life. Well, that's all for this week. I, I thank you for tuning in. Um, I, I'm going to continue just to lift you and your families up in prayer. I know we need it. I, I ask that you would do the same for me. It's going to be a great week, cold one, but a great one here. And my prayer for you is that this whole week you might live a God-sized life. Mm-hmm.